0: I think there's often an assumption when people think about humans and their impacts on ecosystems that we always mess things up. (laughs) (laughs) We come into a system and, you know, things go extinct and we mess up the environment and we change the climate and we, you know, just that we do bad things. But what we're finding with the food web research is very interesting examples of humans coming into systems where humans hadn't existed and fitting into the system and and sometimes being a very critical factor for stabilizing the, the biodiversity of the system.
1: For as long as humans have erected walls around our cities, we've considered culture separate from the encircling wilderness. This difference came to be expressed in our man-versus-nature narratives, beliefs in our dominion over the non-human world, and lately even the assertion that the Earth would be better off without us. Ecology research has strangely almost never included humans in the picture, and yet Homo sapiens is a phenomenon of nature, woven into food webs, demonstrating the same principles at work as any other creature on this planet. New research into trophic networks, who's eating whom, has bridged ecology and archaeology to shed light on the many ways that human beings have participated as key members of ecosystems around the globe. The emerging portrait of our place in nature offers us the opportunity to tell new stories of the hairless ape and what we're doing here, and just in time, perhaps, to help reshape our attitudes towards conservation and development, and what we dare to hope for in the years to come. Welcome to Complexity, official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex systems science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-reaching conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists, developing new frameworks, tools and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity this week's guest is jennifer dunn sfis vice president for science and fellow at the ecological society of america dunn got her phd in energy and resources from uc berkeley joined sfis faculty in 2007 and sits on the advisory board for nautilus magazine In the first half of a two-part conversation, we discuss her work on food and use webs and the Ecology Project Working Group at SFI, where she and her collaborators are transforming how we think of human history. Jennifer Dunn, it is an honor and a pleasure to be here in your office discussing research that I find most interesting.
0: It's Great to have you here.
1: I'd like to anchor this in the human timescale and then work our way out. Okay. into uh, bigger concerns. So I guess the start is, how did you become a scientist?
0: Ah, yes. yes. I love origin stories. I, uh, this is a question I often ask scientists myself. So how did I become a scientist? I was a good student in science and math in high school, uh, like many scientists were. I thought they were incredibly boring because I didn't really understand what math and science were at that point. I thought it was about memorizing a bunch of facts and a bunch of algorithms and kind of regurgitating them or applying them on tests. And so when I went to college, I decided I wanted to get away from science and math. And so I studied philosophy. And I studied philosophy because I was really interested in the progression of ideas through time. And I thought I was going to get that through philosophy and also, it had the fewest requirements of any major <laughs> at my at my university, so it gave me the most freedom to do a lot of other things. And I was interested in reading and writing and close reading of texts and uh, that thing. So uh, philosophy kind of let me down in certain kinds of ways too. Too much of it was sort of taking classes in dead old white men, um, but. Uh, It was my sophomore year in college that I took a class on history of science, or philosophy of science, actually, with Hilary Putnam, a very eminent philosopher of science. And that's when a light bulb for me went off. And so I ended up actually doing more work in history and philosophy of science, because that's where I really got turned on to the progression of ideas through time. That's sort of where I was getting it. I wasn't getting it so much in the way I wanted it through philosophy itself in a lot of ways but through understanding the history of ideas of scientific ideas um, and the philosophy of scientific ideas that really turned me on and so by the time I finished college I was thinking to myself well maybe someday I'll go back and get a science degree maybe I should check out this science thing for real and (laughs) And I was out for a couple of years doing some environmental work and environmental activism until I was understimulated and a little bored, and I decided, well, maybe now's the time for me to check out this science thing. And so I dove back in, started doing um, a master's degree in in ecology and systematic biology at San Francisco State University. And then it kind of unfolded from there in a very still nonlinear fashion. But that's a whole nother, that's the very, the earliest part of the origin story.
1: Okay. So, (laughs) you know, the, the meat of the conversation today is about your work in ecology and in, you know, trophic network reconstruction. So, Mm Let's get into that yeah. and how you, how you came to yeah. pursue that particular scientific yeah. passion.
0: Yeah, um, in terms of, you eco- caught my interest in ecology. That sort of tied into just early childhood, frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, running around in the woods and uh, catching tadpoles and raising them into frogs, and you know, budding little naturalist. I didn't express that until I kind of started decided to study ecology in my twenties. And I actually originally, I did my master's and PhD basically in plant ecology. I trained as what I call a conventional field experimental plant ecologist, looking at the impacts of microclimate and macroclimate on plant communities. Um, Did my PhD research up at the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab uh, up near Crested Butte, Colorado. Um, But uh, towards the end of my PhD... I enjoyed it. I did original research. It was really exciting to become a scientist and to practice that. But focusing just on plants wasn't doing it for me. Again, I was like, what is it that I need? What is it I want? And what I really was interested in was I wanted some way to grab onto, you know, the full set of species in an ecosystem. I didn't want to just know about one subset of species. And a lot of ecology tends to focus in on a particular ecosystem or a particular type of taxon or, you know, a particular interaction. And, and I got exposed to food web research and that got me really excited. Um, and cause that was really trying to look at the full diversity of systems, but then to understand the full set of complex interactions that are tying all these different kinds of organisms from bacteria up to top predators together. And food web research, which in the 90s was kind of a small um, little disrespected backwater of ecological research at that time. Um, but I saw the promise of it and also the promise of using networks and network theory and network approaches in general as a means for trying to quantify and, and dig into and understand um, the complexity of ecosystems in terms of how species interact. Mm. So it was at that point that I ended up switching from my PhD to my postdoc from being a plant ecologist uh, to studying food webs and ecological networks and taking these approaches from statistical physics um, and applying them to understanding the structure and the dynamics and the stability of ecosystems.
1: Some of the really interesting at least for me, some of the most interesting stuff that you've worked on in the last few years to zoom out mm-hmm. one layer yes. is into human history and to talk about a, uh, you know, an idea that has itself evolved over the history of human science and philosophy: that our relationship to nature—do we belong in that category or out of it? Right. And your work on archaeoecological use web mm-hmm. reconstruction. So talk a little bit about that and where the different human communities and the different ecosystems in which mm-hmm. you're doing this work. And also the way that this has brought you into affiliation with these indigenous communities and like what that's like. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, there's a lot there. There's, there's quite I'll, a bit I'll, there. Yeah, I'll try can... to, I'll try to unpack that a bit. So um, most of my work, I mean, what has been, you know, and, and this is another thing that ecologists do. So ecologists tend to study or pretend at least like they're studying ecosystems in the absence of humans. Or they may study ecosystems with human impacts, with humans as these external forcing factors. And in fact, my PhD research was about climate change impacts on plant communities. So it was studying plant communities, but trying to understand what climate change would be doing to them. So in that case, humans as this kind of negative external forcing factor. Um, When I got into the food web research, um, I mostly at first was really doing work to try to understand the fundamentals. Does this food web from, say, a lake, is it structured similarly or differently from a food web in the ocean or from a food web in a forest or a food web in in a desert? So a lot of my early work was really about are food webs similar or different from each other and how they're organized? What are the implications of that for the robustness of those ecosystems to species loss and species change? And, um, but it was very much in this tradition of, like, not thinking like humans are somewhere out there separate from the ecosystems I'm comparing and studying. And, in fact, we've, I and others, have found that there are very deep commonalities in how ecosystems are structured. But, uh, about a decade ago or maybe a little longer ago, I, I got cold called <laughs> by someone who was involved in a, a proposal to the National Science Foundation uh, to fund uh, what what they were calling biocomplexity research in the Aleutian Islands of Alaska. And uh, so this was a group of environmental scientists, ecologists, and archaeologists who were banding together to study this little piece of the Aleutian Islands, the Sanac Archipelago near the tip of the Alaskan Peninsula, and to, to basically do an integrated study of the environment, you know, the climate over time, of the ecology over time, and of humans, and how humans fit into and interact and impact those other elements. So kind of looking at humans, ecology, environmental, intertwined. So they contacted me because they had seen some of my food web work and said, huh, I wonder if we could, or if Jennifer or Jennifer and her colleagues could use those kinds of approaches as a means of thinking about the Aleut, the human hunter-gatherers, and how they kind of fit into this ecological environmental system. So they pitched this idea to me, and I said, wow, that sounds really cool. That sounds really interesting. Uh, Sign me up. So I became a part of the proposal. The proposal got funded, and um, and so that was me. That was how I first got pulled into thinking about humans, and in this case, a very important thing that we all agreed on from the very beginning, and that is reflected in papers that have come out. Is is this notion that, you know, we need to do more work, both as archaeologists and as ecologists to not have these strong separations and to not think of humans as outside of the ecosystem or as just some negative forcing factor. And so we want to think, I mean, humans are in one sense, are just another species and, um, and they act in certain ways and their behavior like with other species impacts other organisms and impacts the ecosystem. And, um, And so we were all committed to sort of this notion of pulling humans in explicitly into ecological analysis and using ecological analysis to encompass species, including humans. So um, that was, um, it wasn't the, so we, my colleagues compiled a huge amount of data. That's a whole nother story. Um, But Spencer Wood, who's still a very close colleague of mine, he's up at University of Washington. He was, um, he was doing a PhD in intertidal ecology, food web ecology at the time. And he, um, he did this big effort to put together this huge database of, of species feeding interactions or trophic interactions. That's just another word for feeding. And, and, and then also did local sampling of the, of the intertidal and the nearshore marine systems um, and was able to, and, and then combine, we combined all this ecological information that we would normally use to pull food webs together and figuring out who eats whom and who's present and all that stuff we combine that with archaeological data of various kinds. So, for example, um, next to every, there's 128 home sites on this small island. All of them were, and all of this work actually was done with the explicit approval and permission of this of the Senac Corporation, which is the group of Aleut, the Senac Aleut, who used to live on the island. They moved off in the 50s. And they were actually very excited to support the archaeological and ecological research that goes on. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But um, So the archaeologists excavated or took cores from the middens by all the home sites. So middens are just the trash heaps, the human trash heaps, but they go down through time. You know, so the deeper you go in the midden, you know, the deeper in time you are. And people had been on the island for 6,000 years or longer. And out of that, they're able to pluck out all these shells and bones and they can, they can do zooarchaeology on them to figure out, you know, what fish species and what shell, you know, mollusks and birds and things they were feeding on. Um, That's not a complete picture of what the alley were feeding on. So we were in that case, my colleagues were also able to include some anthropological data. So they ethnographic studies and and what they did was actually to go to some of the Aleut the Senac Aleut elders and actually who had lived on the island um, and interviewed them and asked them like what did you eat you know and what did you eat in times of need and what did you eat in times of plenty and what were your preferences and what was this and what was that so that really helped to fill out like they ate a lot of different species of algae And they ate a lot of different invertebrates and, you know, they, there were just a lot of things that they ate in addition to the little bones and shelly bits that we could recover. So you start, we use all that information order to bring humans in this case, the snack alley explicitly into the food web as one of the nodes and connect them to all the different species that they were consuming. And, um, and, and so then, again, it was, it was not the first time that humans had been included in a food web, but the previous food webs that had included humans were very much kind of cartoonish. They were very small and poorly resolved, and they weren't really good data for really doing anything scientific with. This was the first time that a really highly resolved food web with many hundreds of species resolved evenly at all levels of the food web, explicitly included humans. So that then allowed us to start asking fairly simple questions, things like, how do humans compare as predators or consumers to other consumers in the variety of things they eat? You know, very simple question, but unless you have the data, you can't answer it. And so we knew, first of all, humans were feeding on about a quarter of the species in the marine system, in the nearshore marine system. And so is that a lot or is that a little You don't know until you compare. So then we look at the other, we can do a histogram where we show basically how many of the predators or consumers in the system feed on X number of prey species. And so you get this distribution where most things are highly specialized and they feed on one to 10 different things. But then you have this long tail and humans are way out at the end of it, along with cod.
1: Um, <laughs> and, and we're eating the cod right so, And yeah. right,
0: exactly and cod probably would have eaten humans if they had a chance but I don't think they had a chance and, uh, and so those two species were eating um, many more different types of species and other species um, in that system and not only that humans were highly omnivorous they were feeding at all trophic levels so feeding on everything from the algae to the shrimp to the mollusks to the fishes and to the sea mammals, um, uh, sea lions and things. So, yeah, so we, we can start to use this kind of data to really start to understand how humans compare to other species in the context of an ecological network. And this is the reason, actually, why the Sanac Aleut were really, or part of the reason they were interested in supporting this kind of work is because it actually gave them information about themselves. I mean, they obviously knew a lot of this already. They know what they eat, you know, and yeah. they even know what they eat historically. But to have it done in a very quantitative way and in a rigorous scientific way, it provides them with a lot of information that's actually quite useful to them as a, as a people and as a culture. For example, when things come up, I mean, there can be law cases where they are need to assert their rights to hunt and fish certain kinds of things. And they need to demonstrate that they have a history of doing this. And so now, you know, this gives them some additional ways to actually kind of go, look, you know, we have the charts and graphs to back us up, <laughs> you know. For, and it's also useful just for them in sort of, you know, maintaining ties through time of like their current culture, you know, which no longer lives on the island to like their past history as a people. And
1: so it helps that continuity. So, in the abstract to the 2015 paper that came out of this research, mm-hmm. you mentioned uh, that potential extinctions in the simulation that you ran on this mm-hmm. this data decreased when an invading omnivorous supergeneralist <laughs> consumer, that would be us, yeah. uh, focused strong feeding on decreasing fractions of its possible resources. Yes. So, that seems to have some pretty broad implications, Right. and uh, I'd like to... Dig in on that a little bit and then possibly also link that to the work that right. you and Stephanie Crabtree did in Australia, looking mm-hmm. at the the impacts of human foraging t- technology and, right. and approaches yeah. to that particular ecosystem. And, yeah.
0: So I think um, I think there's often an assumption when people think about humans and their impacts on ecosystems that we always mess things up. (laughs) We come into a system and, you know, things go extinct and we mess up the environment and we change the climate and we, you know, just that we do bad things. (laughs) And, um, and that, you know, certainly human, there's many examples of humans having negative impacts when they enter a system or if they are in a system for a long time and overdevelop or do too much agriculture, you know, or cause species to go extinct for whatever reason. But, what we're finding with the food web research is we're actually, at, at least in, um, you know, in a historical and archaeological time, we're finding it very interesting examples of humans coming into systems where humans hadn't existed, and fitting into the system, and, and sometimes being a very critical factor for stabilizing the the biodiversity of the system. So. We have kind of two examples of this one, the Aleut one that I was involved with and led, and then this other one that you mentioned that um, Stephanie Crabtree was involved with. So in the case of the Aleut project up in Alaska, what we realized from looking at the structure of the food web and how humans fit into it is that humans were special in the roles that they played, in a sense. I mean, They were these super generalists feeding on many different things and super omnivores feeding at all trophic levels. And very closely connected to all the other species in the food web. And that just the fact of that, how they fit in, um, Uh that alone suggests that they were poised when they came in 6,000 or 7,000 years ago to have big impacts on the system. They potentially could have had big negative impacts, given that they feed on so many different things and at different levels. However, um, we have no evidence that there were any shorter long-term extinctions um, in that system or severe environmental de- degradation or, you know, other negative effects. They seem to kind of come in and fit in. And this is in spite of the fact that they were these super generalist omnivores, and in spite of the fact that they also used hunting technology. And, um they made kayaks and uh, they made all the tools that went along with kayaks and they, their preferred food were sea lions. And so they'd go out and feed on, you know, hunt sea lions, but it was a big effort to try to get all that technology together. And also most of the time, the weather didn't allow them to go out and hunt sea lions. Mm. So what they would do and what they did was something that's very, very common to ecological generalists. They switch prey pretty much all the time. And so if you can feed on many things, you may have a preference, you know, in this case for the sea lions, but most of the time you can't go after that preferred thing for whatever reason. So you go, well, you know, I'm going to go into the inner tidal and I'm going to pick up sea urchins and eat sea urchins or big juicy mollusks or whatever. And, um, and then even within the inner tidal you'll switch because I'll go after the big juicy things first. And then those get a little harder to find, and so they just kind of naturally switch to a smaller-bodied thing. And then when the salmon run would ac- would arrive, the salmon would come in. They would drop everything else and they go focus on the salmon. And um, and then if the weather was really bad and the salmon weren't around, they might just harvest some bird eggs close to their home. So, but this kind of switching among your different prey items is what generalists do, and it's actually. Um, It makes a lot of sense if you think about it. It's kind of intuitive that you would switch under certain circumstances. The other thing it does is it's very stabilizing for the ecosystem because it allows things that, you know, whose population, their local populations are decreasing because you're eating them or for whatever other reason, it allows them to recover. Your attention goes somewhere else because it's easier to find this other thing. And so the population you were focusing on for food gets to recover. So that's really good for the population. It's also good for the whole ecosystem. And so what we did in that paper and that piece of research was to run some toy models, basically some simulations of an idealized system that we invaded with a human like species that's super generalist Mm -hmm. and omnivore. We also gave them kind of a a stand in for using hunting technology. What hunting technology does for humans, in effect, is to allow them to feed at a rate that's much greater than their body size Mm. So, um, typically predators, you can sort of tag their success rate or their rate to like hunt and acquire food. It's, it's roughly a function of their body size as many things are in biology. And, um, but if you start developing technology and using it, all of a sudden it's like you're a whole pack of people all smushed together, you know, who can, you know, access many more calories all at once.
1: That Um, that image of the, uh. The big fish eating the smaller fish and then the entire school of fish. That's right, eating the big shaped fish. Shaped like a giant fish. Yeah. yeah,
0: and I mean, and so, yeah, and uh, group hunting behavior is a, is a form of kind of feeding successfully at a higher rate than an individual will be able to. So hunting tech does this for you. Um, so, yes, if humans came in, if human hunter-gatherers had come into that system with a bunch of fancy hunting tech, and they had used hunting tech all the time on everything, that probably would have been really disruptive and caused some extinctions locally. However, most of the time, the Cenac Alley, they hunted some of the time and they like to go out and hunt, like I said, sea lions. But a lot of the times they were just foraging. They weren't using technology. They or maybe they might have a, you know, like a some kind of pail or bucket to like put things in from the intertidal. But a lot of times they're just going out and foraging for stuff and not using fancy tech. So they're, they're basically kind of tied to their body size. And so as long as, I mean, you could have the humans come into that system and give them a little bit of hunting technology, but as long as you limited it to, you know, a few things at a time, um, which is pretty much what the the humans did in the system, then you basically, you don't see um, secondary extinctions. Now, it's not the only reason you wouldn't see secondary extinctions in that system, because the human population was relatively small. And also they're kind of in an open system, so marine organisms are kind of flowing into the system from the outside and replenishing themselves, also. But there certainly are scenarios where people have arrived on islands and, and wreaked havoc. They did not do that on the snack island. And and we think it's, you know, partly because they, you know, were prey switching and allowing things to recover, and they were only using hunting hunting technology a fraction of the time. So That's the Aleut story. So the other story is this Australia story uh, that Stephanie Crabtree was involved with um, uh, and did work building on a lot of work by Rebecca Bleedy Bird, um, a professor uh, at Penn State. And uh, so Stephanie also, she basically uh, brought this food web kind of perspective uh, to uh, work that had been going on looking at the Mardu um, people, the hunter-gatherers of the Western Desert of Australia. Now, this is a very different kind of system from what I looked at up in the Snack Islands. It's a terrestrial, continental system, basically. It's a desert system, whereas the Snack Allied had been on their island for about seven thousand years, six or seven thousand years. The the Aborigines of Australia have been on their landscape for probably eighty thousand years, maybe longer. And in effect, there is no ecosystem on Australia that is separate or prior to humans. Humans and the Australian ecosystems have co-evolved over many tens of thousands of years. So they put together, Stephanie put together food web data for the Mardu, because what happened with the Mardu is that the government of Australia, in their infinite wisdom, (laughs) (laughs) um, pulled the Mardu people off of their lands off the Western desert of Australia in the mid 20th century. Um, So just remove them from that, their ancestral lands. And, um, and so Stephanie was able to put together kind of before and after pictures of the food webs, including the humans. So with humans and then without humans and the impact within just a few years, frankly, was enormous. When they pulled the Mardu people off, a bunch of small bodied mammals went extinct There was a bunch of extinction cascades. The food web contracted greatly. It became much smaller and and impoverished. Because what had happened, basically, was that the Mardu people do small-scale burning in order to access their their main uh, preferred food items. And their preferred food items are large-bodied lizards. And so they would do this patchy burning on the landscape that um, would make it easier for them to hunt the lizards and and get them out of their like holes in the ground. And so they created and over many tens of thousands of years they've been doing this. And so they've created this beautiful mosaic of of landscapes, these like sub-landscapes on the desert, that did several things. A, it, it created a diversity of ecosystems. So it enhanced the biodiversity of the whole region because you have all these different patches at different kind of levels of growth and development. And so different kinds of species can thrive in these. It also prevented massive wildfires because it was kind of this kind of controlled burn thing that humans were doing, but over many tens of thousands of years. So when they pulled the humans out, all of a sudden they started also getting massive wildfires that would just burn everything to the ground and sterilize the soil for the top several inches and you know impede redevelopment of the ecosystem and reduce diversity. So Stephanie was able to show this um, aspects of this through looking at these before and after snapshots of the food webs. And what's happening now is that the Mardu people are now moving back onto their ancestral lands in the Western desert and are returning to their um, old practices, including this patchy burning of the landscape. And already the ecosystem is starting to rebound um, in terms of diversity and, you know, other, other impacts. So those are two really cool examples where, A, food web approaches were used to explicitly incorporate humans into, into ecological network studies and for ecology to kind of encompass humans, in this case, hunter-gatherers. Um, and in both cases, humans were important for the functioning of the ecosystem, even more so that's even more stark in the Australian case. But in both cases, I mean, in the case of the Senac Alley, they came in 7,000 years ago or so and didn't wreak destruction and havoc. And it's too early to tell now that humans have moved off those systems how much of an impact that's going to have. In the case of the Mardu people in Australia, there is very clearly a very negative ecological impact by pulling humans out of the system and an an ecological benefit to having them come back onto the system.
1: This is definitely, you know, the way I've seen this portrayed in in the news is like you said at the beginning of this a way to disabuse ourselves of this kind of self-destructive eco guilt that humans are just ruinous wherever we appear
0: right and we're separate from we're separate from nature and we're ruinous to nature it's like well we're a part of nature for better and for worse as many other species are too
1: yeah i think uh you know we have in part films like The Matrix, you know, Agent Smith calling humans a virus, and that just seeded our imagination, yeah. Yeah. So, I'm interested in, not just among hunter-gatherer communities, but, you know, I've heard seemingly related research into the areas around cities, Mm -hmm. and how uh, the built environment of human beings can actually provide zones of extraordinary biodiversity, Mm -hmm. and so, like, We haven't even brought up the archaeoecology project, and we'll get there. (laughs) Yeah, which encompasses you know much more than feeding, right? Yes, the entire use web of all of this stuff. Two of the the questions raised by this project are: How does space and dimension of territory influence the socioecological systems? Mm -hmm. And then also, a key role of humans may be bringing together other taxa that would not otherwise interact. So how? variable is this integration and how does this affect resource management and ecological stability? So, you know, there seems like a really important, vital move toward understanding human settlements as areas where we can actually perform regenerative functions and, you know, that human created niches can lead to novel interactions. And I'd love to hear what kind of insights are actually being applied out of this, if you, I, mean, like, I don't know. Yeah, I won't
0: be able to answer that.
1: Okay, but,
0: but I mean, I'll talk about sort of tangential, related, and sure, related. But uh, I mean, a couple things. So, in terms of, I mean, I just mentioned, you know, two projects that are looking at humans and food webs, and in this case, cases where humans were a part of food webs, an important part of stabilizing food webs, and so not ruinous to the right. to the webs. There's also there is this issue of, I mean, there are movements afoot, and the National Science Foundation has funded something. So NSF in the United States has funded these things called long-term ecological research sites, so where they're actually you know supporting long-term research over decades because too often research is kind of bounded by the length of a grant, which is a, <laughs> you know three to five years. And so NSF invested in long-term ecological research. Well, as a part of that, they actually funded um, a couple of urban-rural gradient research sites. So basically, they supported groups who were doing research in rural-to-urban gradients, basically. So where they go all the way from kind of a rural, more natural setting, cross-space into the city. And then they look at different aspects of ecological and human kind of involvement and environment along that gradient or along that transect. And I think, you know, and so one of those was centered around Baltimore and one of those centered around uh, Tempe Phoenix. And, mm-hmm. um, I hopefully got that right. <laughs> so, I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting work that, you know, people are starting to do along those lines. Now, in terms of sort of the bigger agenda that we're looking at, we uh, meet myself, me and, um, my colleague Stephanie Crabtree and Spencer Wood and a variety of, ar- of archaeologists and anthropologists have gotten together. Um, and this, this kind of grew out, first of all, it grew out of this Humans and Food Webs work. Um, it also grew out of conversations I had via a project I got involved with uh, based in French Polynesia, so the islands of Morea and some sister islands. Um, so that's next to Tahiti, So uh, I got involved in a similar kind of project in some ways in Morea with some archaeologists, Pat Kirch and Jenny Kahn. And we realized early on in the project a few years ago that we didn't really have the resources to compile a really complete full food web of all the species on multiple islands. We want to do that eventually. But so we were kind of tossing around the idea of what, what can we do that we think is interesting and important that's shy of kind of doing this full food web thing that I did up in the Senec-Aleut project. And, And so what we started tossing around was like, well, we have a lot of information on not just how humans were feeding on other species, but how they were interacting with species in other ways and using them often in a variety of different ways. And so I brought this idea back to my colleagues, Stephanie and Spencer, and we started kind of brainstorming more deeply about this and this is sort of how the archaeoecology project was born. And so what we we decided to put together a working group to basically to it's not just about food. I mean food's important right it's fundamental. Everything has to eat it's one way or another. But in the case of humans, humans are also really good at using species in other kinds of ways. And so we put together this working group to kind of hash out what are these primary ways in terms of kind of pre-industrial people. And it includes things you know. We use other uh, humans use other species for clothing, and they use other species for uh, shelter, and they use them for for fuel, and they use them to make tools, and they use them for transportation, and they use them as pets, and they use them as medicine, and they use them for ritual purposes, and they use them for cosmological purposes, and so we basically what we we realized we we had this whole potential rich new area that we could compile data in across many different kinds of systems and systematically gather data about all the different kinds of ways that in this case, pre-industrial humans um, were interacting with other species because as we start to compile that data, that opens up this whole world of interesting kind of questions that we can start asking, including some of the ones that you've, you know, found in some of my, some of our uh, materials. Um, and, um, and it also, the way that I think about it is like, so, you know, humans are interacting with species in this huge variety of ways, we can put numbers on those, we can create networks of those. And we can use that to understand basically, how humans are interacting with biodiversity, and how that are the patterns similar, or different across systems all over the world, and in different parts of time. And how does that relate to the ecological context? So what are the species humans, as humans enter these systems? What are the species they have access to? What are the habitats they have access to? Um, what are the constraints and opportunities of the environment, of the climate? The, all these places have different kinds of climates. Some are dry, some are wet, some are continental, some are marine. You know, and also humans bring their own culture and their own stuff with them, their own taboos and their own tools and technology. I mean, like when the, um, Polyne- the ancient Polynesians, um, they came across and came into the, into the Polynesian islands. That was the Polynesian islands in New Zealand were the last parts of the world to be, um, occupied by humans. And that happened 700 to a thousand years ago. And they came across, um, from Southeast Asia and they came across open water, thousands of miles of open ocean water in canoes that they brought whole little ecosystems with them because they were agriculturalists so they brought a bunch of agricultural plants like bananas and taro and and coconuts they also brought pigs and they brought chickens and they brought hitchhikers uh, rats and other things and so they bring all these things into the ecosystem and it's like what well, how does the ecosystem respond to that they've got these crazy new species coming in humans plus all these associated species You know, humans start altering the ecosystem. They cut down trees in order to create agricultural land. Um, But then they start taking advantage of what's there, too. They become fisher people, you know, or continue to be fisher people and, you know, take advantage of the reef system. So basically, this is a new thing. No one's tried to compile this kind of data systematically before. There's a ton of information out there about uses of different species, but it's usually very piecemeal. Like in the Pacific Northwest, there's whole monographs and careers have been built on like a hundred, a thousand and one uses for red cedar. Mm. So what we got was a a group of archeologists and anthropologists to basically commit to compiling the same kinds of data for their systems so that we could then go back and start comparing them and being like, well, does the Pacific Northwest coast people, what do, I mean, what's common and what's different with how they interact with species versus what goes on with the Mardu people of Australia. And I mean, there's a there's a zillion different interesting questions you can start to ask with data like that if you can compile that data, which we think we can, we're we're getting there. Um, one thing that I'm interested in that's a kind of perennial topic of discussion at at the Santa Fe Institute is um, innovation, technology use, technology development, and innovation across cultures, and. Um, I mean, the way that that's been looked at by archaeologists, for example, in past systems has often been to look at pot or, you mm-hmm. know, or, you know, but it's been very limited. They've been very limited in kind of the way, or it, for modern systems, we look at the patents. You can look at patents and sort of unpack and look at patterns and patents. But what we're doing now for these pre-industrial systems, at least, is we're providing a way to start to understand the complexities of, Technology um, use and technologies used by different people. And this gets back to sort of different examples of hunting and gathering. So, certain kinds of interactions with species are very simple. You know, if you want to eat a berry, you wait until it ripens, you go out to the forest, you find the berry, and you eat it. Or if you want to eat a mussel, you go out to the intertidal, you crack a mussel on a rock, and you slurp its insides out. But if you want to go hunt a whale, which Pacific Northwest people do, all of a sudden you have to do this crazily complex set of interactions with a variety of species in order to create the technology that you need in order to hunt a whale. So you have to cut a tree down to make a canoe. You have to use all kinds of tools that are made out of other species um, in order to make the canoe. You have to make all these associated technologies, a spear, you know, and uh, floats and other things. And you have to do rituals of a certain kind that require interacting with a different set of species I mean, just making a canoe alone requires humans using about a dozen different plant species and and about a dozen different animal species in a variety of different ways. So it's its own complex little network just to create the canoe itself. And that's just one piece of the puzzle um, for the technology to go out and successfully hunt and eat a whale. So the data, you know, as we start to dive into it, And get into some of the complexities of how you know we sort of understand the variety of different ways humans are interacting with species all of a sudden like you get this really rich network data that allows you to start to kind of make comparisons you know is there a trade-off for example the mardu people have a really rich cosmology you know is that partly because they're fairly resource poor in other ways and Mm. so they have a richer cosmology Although that may not be true because the Pacific Northwest people both have a rich cosmology, but they also have uh, access to many more different types of species. So these are, you know, there's like lots of hypotheses that people have put out there about different things, but this is going to give us new ways to kind of get at some of those comparisons and questions, but using this new kind of quantitative
1: data. It's really interesting in light of this, you know, Brian Arthur type question about the evolution of technology and the idea that the you know technology as an evolutionary system is path dependent so like the question about what happens if we have a civilizational collapse and then we have to reboot with all of the, the metals mined yeah. out already. You know, right. all of the, the oil and natural gas is mined out already. Right. So can we actually rebuild the civilization that we have Yeah. from a new, a different starting place?
0: Right. And and actually, that's in a, in a s- smaller sense, that's sort of one of the things we'll be asking of our different systems. What kinds of technologies did people develop given particular kinds of opportunities they had or lack of opportunities they had? And in some cases, we're looking at people who brought technologies with them, you know, from other places. In other cases, we're just looking at people who basically, you know, co-evolved with the ecosystem over many tens of thousands of years and just developed their own approaches and technologies. So I think there's going to be some very, you know, we can start to kind of play some of these games in a sense, but not games. You know, it's like this is what humans actually did on the lands- on a variety of different landscapes but by looking at it through the lens of biodiversity and all the in our interactions with different species it gives us a hook an ecological hook into trying to quantify and understand some of those things and it just gives us a new lens and a new kind of framework for trying to answer some of these interesting questions or old questions in new ways and ask new kinds of questions so.
1: Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.